um, I finished my first marathon and five days later found out I had breast cancer. Wasn't expecting. Wasn't expecting to even have it. No one in my family does. Um, they said it was early stages, don't worry. Um, but I made the choice with my husband to do a bilateral surgery. Um, when we came for a post-op, we got more bad news. Not only did he lose his job, but I also found out my cancer was um, stage four and throughout my lymph nodes, um, out of 26, 24 were and lesions on my body. And I'm currently doing chemo on my spine because there are cancer cells in there. Um, it is considered terminal. Um, but in my heart of hearts, you know, whatever the medical doctors say, it's not their plan, it's God's plan. Um, through this, um, he's told me to be patient and be still, which is very hard for me because I'm very hyper and very active. And I've been able to talk to many cancer patients and pray over them, be there for them through their surgeries, through their chemos. Um, they've asked me why I'm always walking around smiling. And I, I always say there's one person that makes me smile and I know where I'm going and it's because of God and my salvation. Um, with my girls, I always tell them not to fear because I always will be there with them and they'll be back with me in heaven. Um, I'm closer now to him than I've ever been. It's either the choice of letting the devil win and taking me deeper and deeper or letting God win and show me what I've longed for all my life is true, genuine love. Hey, would you bow your head and pray with me? <clears throat> Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come in this day to worship you. Some of us feel like worshiping you. Some of us walk in this very week or this season of our life with immense amount of blessing and provision and protection, and we look at our own lives and think, wow, I didn't know it would be this good. And God, there are other men and women and students that walk in this day in immense amount of pain and brokenness and brokenheartedness, and God, and God, we choose to worship you by faith. God, I thank you that you are sovereign above all things that you've never been surprised, there's nothing out of your hand, there's not one thing going on in any person sitting in this room, sitting in a video venue, a tonight's service, a podcast, whoever, God, you know it. You know it all. You've never been surprised, you've never had to call 911, you've never thought, oh no, what will I do now? Because you've got a purpose and you've got a plan. God, we thank you when we praise you that we can know confidently that you love us because while we were yet still sinners, you proved for your love for us in this. Christ died on the cross for us and a hundred years from this day. The only thing that matters is not our current circumstances. The only thing that matters is what did we do with Jesus. And God, I thank you that you are at work in all things for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. And there will come a day 
when that trumpet sounds, and we will be wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not our own good works, not our own good circumstances, not our pain, but God, in the righteousness that is Jesus Christ. And God, I thank you that you wipe away every tear, that you make all things new. God, in the kingdom of heaven, no one walks with a limp or a swagger, but we walk with you. And God, I pray that as we open up your word, your holy word this day, God, that it will do what it always does, that it will cut us to our very souls and it will point us not to our own circumstances, but your word will point us to you, a good dad that loves us and proved it once and for all with your son's life, death, and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you got your Bibles, uh, grab them. We're going to be in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus for until Easter, okay? So you're going to want to look it up. It's in this, the second book of the Bible. Um, and, and so we're, we're at the third week of our series in Exodus. <clears throat> and we've been talking about uh, Moses. <clears throat> and you'll remember week one, was we, we looked at the reality that God can use both pain and provision to accomplish his purpose and plans. And so he used the provision of raising Moses in the household of Pharaoh to learn how the inner workings of Pharaoh's palace work, and that Moses would be the only Hebrew man in the world that could get a face-to-face appointment with, with Pharaoh, and that he also um, used the provision of having him, or really the pain of having him serve as a shepherd out in the wilderness for his father-in-law for 40 years to learn how to shepherd flocks out in the wilderness, and little did Moses know that it was both pain and provision that God was using to prepare him for a day that Moses would be used of God to be the deliverer of God's people out of the slavery in Egypt. <clears throat> and then last week, we talked about the burning bush, and even if you're kind of new to Bible study, you've probably heard of the burning bush, that God has this call on the life of Moses. And for every person that, that God puts a call in their life, which is every Christian, if you're a believer, you've got a call on your life, then you're going to do one of two things really well. You're going to make excuses or you're going to make a difference. And you're going to get good at one of those. And I don't know a person alive that's good at both of them. I know people that are good at being obedient to what God has called us to do. And I know people that are good at why they can't. And so this week where we pick it up, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to start out in about Exodus 7. You should probably go to Exodus 12. That's when we'll really hunker down. But Moses and Aaron essentially do exactly what God has called Moses to do. The reason he's got his little sidekick Aaron is because you remember one of the five excuses that Moses gives. God says, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, I stutter. God essentially says, I don't, but here, Aaron can go with you. And so now here they are, they go. And you'll remember one of the things that we talked about last week, God gives Moses kind of three tricks. Remember, he's got the staff, the snake, the staff trick. Remember how cool that was? And I told you, can you imagine how much more our church would grow if I could pull that one off? You could talk to your boss and be like, hey, I know you're not into the church, Jesus thing, but you've got to see this. This dude can make a stick into a snake and then back into a stick. I'm telling you, you think it's crowded now? If I was like, ah, and I did that, bam, we've we got to meet at Everbank. You understand? So, so he's got that one, and then he's got the hand trick where he puts it in his cloak and it gets weird, and then he puts it back and it's good again. And then he's got the other trick where he can t- turn uh, the ni- water from the Nile into blood. And so now, emboldened by the power of God, <clears throat> Moses and Aaron, they go before Pharaoh. And the first thing he does, he goes up to Pharaoh and he says, I am here on behalf of God. And God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, essentially, he's like, yeah, right. I ain't letting nobody go. And he's like, oh, yeah, you think so? And he pulls his stick out and he goes, watch this. And he takes the staff, he throws it on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh says, yeah, whatever. Calls his magicians in and they can do the same trick. And Moses thinks... Dang it, all right? That's Hebrew. That's what he thinks. That was my whole plan. What am I going to do now? 
Now, luckily, Moses' snake eats the Egyptian snakes, and then he picks it back up, and I guess the stick is like three times bigger. I'm not sure. But he doesn't even try the other two because he's like, well, this isn't working at all. Goes back to God. He's like, God, my tricks didn't work. God leads in essentially. He's like, I know. I know. Remember, I am not dependent on your success, neither am I measuring you based on your success, but on your obedience. Moses, the whole point is not how, about how awesome you are, but about how awesome I am. And then Moses is going to go back to Pharaoh ten times and announce ten times, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And every time, Pharaoh is like, nah. And so Moses says, well, if you don't, God is going to rain down a plague on you and all of Egypt. And if you look through the, if you look through like Exodus 7 through 12, you'll see all these plagues and they seem kind of random to us, but they're not random at all. Every individual plague was to take on like the top 10 Egyptian gods that, that the Egyptians believed in and worshiped. So there was like a sun god and a Nile god and a gnat god and a frog god and a locust god and all that. And each one of these plagues is God stepping in going, okay, send me your best, and then smacking him down. It's kind of like WWE of the Old Testament. That's kind of what it's like, all right? He steps in, he beats down their God, and then he says, who's next? And so Moses shows up, and here, here are nine of the plagues, all right? He turns all the water to blood in the land. Pharaoh's like, that doesn't bother me. Then he makes frogs show up all over the place. Now, not like lizards in Florida. You know, you open your door and your whole yard goes, because there's lizards everywhere, not that. But the, the Bible says there's frogs in the bedroom, in the bathroom, in the bed, and so this really freaks Pharaoh out, which I think he's married. You know what I mean? I think all the water turns to blood, and Pharaoh's like, don't worry about it. But when you get frogs in the bed, I think Pharaoh's wife's like, look, I don't know what you and the sovereign God have in, going on here, but you better get this thing figured out. Get the frogs out of my bed. Pharaoh comes in and is like, all right, we've got to do something about this. So Moses prays, and all the frogs just die, and the Egyptians have to clean up the mess. That's a sermon in and of itself, but I do not have time for that. So you've got, you got water to blood, then you've got frogs, and then gnats show up, and then flies show up. And then all the livestock of the Egyptians die. And then everybody gets boils, okay? They get these little, you know, breakouts all over them. And then uh, the seventh one is hail comes raining down and then a little bit of fire with it. And then the eighth one is locusts come in and all the locusts come in and eat all the crops and eat people's clothes. And when the locust comes in, even the Egyptians are calling out into like the Pharaoh hotline and saying, hey, you got to work this thing out with God. Let's go ahead and let the people go. So that's kind of what they want to do. And then the ninth plague, the whole place turns dark. And then, through all of this, if you've got time today, you know, when all the football games are over, to read from chapter 7 to chapter 12, you'll find out that a few things happen. One is that on a few of these, like the frogs and the flies and the hail and the locusts and the darkness, a few of these, Moses will, will come to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no way. And then the plague comes, and then Pharaoh comes back to Moses and says, okay, 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 I'll let him go. I'll let him go. If you can just turn the light back on, get the locusts out of here, you know, whatever, get the frogs out, I will let the people go. And then, as soon as the circumstances change back, he goes, never mind. Okay? And some of us might go, why would Pharaoh do that? I don't know. Ask yourself the same question. How many times have you promised, I mean, listen, don't raise your hand, but how many times have you said, God, if you'll get me out of this one, I will never, ever, ever do this again. And you've prayed that twice, at least. I know that you have, okay? It's on pastors.com. We know everything. We know your girlfriend was holding your hair back on New Year's Eve, and you were praying, dear God, if you will get me out of this one, I will. And then your circumstances change. I mean, we get in rough circumstances. We'll make all kind of desperate prayers to God. And then our circumstances change. We're like, man, never mind. 
That happens to Pharaoh over and over. Another thing that happens on a few of these is <clears throat> sometimes Pharaoh will be like, okay, okay, okay. All right, if you'll make the gnats go away, you can take the people, but you can only take the men. You've got to leave the women and children and the livestock. Or you can take all the people, but you've got to leave the animals. One of the things that Pharaoh tries to do is negotiate with God. Lord, sovereign Lord, and negotiate do not belong in the same sentence. And again, you would think, why would Pharaoh do that? I don't know. We should look in the mirror and ask the same question because every one of us in the room think we're good negotiators with God. I mean, honestly, some of you are here this morning to make up for last night. I know, I know. And you're like, how did he know? I know. Let me just tell you, God is not a negotiator, okay? You don't get like positive credits for doing good stuff to make up for the negatives that that you've done in the past. God is not a negotiator. And then the third thing that you're going to see if you'll read this text, is all throughout the scriptures, and this will mess with your mind a little bit, especially as a free American, is the Bible will say that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, which, as a believer, as a Christian, actually should help us just exhale and relax a little bit. You know what that means? That means that nobody's changing anybody's heart until God moves in and makes the difference. I don't care what your tricks are, how good your apologetics are, how good your, your invitation is. And I know as Christians, you know, some of us can kind of have this idea that our job is to change the hearts and minds of our friends and neighbors and family members and coworkers and the whole world. Nothing's changing until God changes a heart. So those nine things happen, you know, and it's kind of cool if you want to read about it. And then the tenth one. <clears throat> In chapter 11, uh, Moses is going to come in and he's going to give this warning, and it's called the plague of the firstborn. And essentially, he comes in to Pharaoh and he says, okay, listen, Pharaoh, this is the last time we're going to see each other face to face, okay, because this is about to get real. If you don't let God's people go, then God is going to come through, and he's going to take out the firstborn of everybody. The firstborn of people and animals, livestock, Pharaoh, from your son all the way down to the lowliest servant's firstborn son, everybody's going to be wiped out if you don't let God's people go. And Pharaoh, with a hardened heart, said, let anybody go. And then we pick it up in chapter 12, verse 12, I mean, verse 21. God sends Moses to go warn the nation of Israel, God's own people, that this is coming. That this angel of death is coming through Egypt and that God wants to spare his people. So in chapter 12, verse 21... It says, then Moses called all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb and take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you should go outside the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and to strike you. And you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say, what do you mean by this service? And you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And then he goes on. He goes on to explain what would be instituted as the Passover meal. 
And so he says, listen, so first and foremost, you're going to go, dad, you're going to go, and you're going to pick a perfect, perfect spotless lamb, right? And then you're going to shed its blood, you're going to put it on the doorposts of your house because an angel of death is coming through Egypt. And anyone that's got the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorpost of his house, I will pass over and will not judge or condemn. And then when that part of it's over, you've got to have this special meal, this special Passover meal. And you don't have enough time to put, your, put like yeast in the bread and let it rise because we've got to be in a hurry here, okay? So it's going to be flatbread. You used to eat fluffy bread, now you're going to eat flatbread. And you've got to eat the lamb in just this certain way. And when you eat, I know a lot of times you eat, you like to sit back on your couch, you know, and eat like that. But you can't eat like that because we've got to be in a hurry. Because when the Passover happens, when the angel of death comes through and strikes down the firstborn of everything, there's going to be gra- uh, crying and gnashing of teeth in Egypt. And Pharaoh's finally going to be convinced and he's going to say, okay, go. And you've got to be ready to go. So have your overnight bags packed and you better eat with your shoes on and your belt tightened and your staff in your hand and kind of, you know, hot pocket style, like ready to go. This is fast food. You better be ready. And so the dads are like, all right, we're going to do this. And they go and they get their families together. And they look at their firstborn son. And they say, we've got to find a perfect spotless lamb. And we're going to slay the lamb, put his blood on the doorpost of our house. Because an angel of death is coming over. And the son probably said, well, that's not very fair. And he goes, well, look here, boy. It's either you or it's the lamb. And the son probably were like, here, you know, however you call it. I don't know how you call a lamb. Whatever you do. Come here. You know, that. Sure enough, slays the lamb. They put the blood of this lamb on the doorpost of the house and the angel of death comes through and passes over any house that has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house. And anyone who doesn't, there is great crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the Pharaoh says, y'all can go, go. And this is the biggest, this is the biggest moment in the history of Israel. And the reason is because it points to the biggest moment in human history. So the reason we're going to hang out on the Passover, here's why. is because I need you to understand that the whole point of this book is not about you, okay? From cover to cover, yes, it is the almighty inspired word of God, all right? Yes, it's the best-selling book in the history of the world. All of those things are true, but it's also, it's not about you. From cover to cover, this book, the Bible... Yes, it is, a, it is a collection of ancient manuscripts that have been preserved in a miraculous way over thousands of years from dozens of different authors over different time periods. All of that is true. But fundamentally, it's about one story. It's about God's redemptive story of his people through his son, Jesus. It's essentially a story between two trees. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Old Testament, and there's the tree of life in the New Testament. And in, in the book of Revelation, so it's, the, it's between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and what hangs right there in the middle is the Son of God, the Lamb of God that hangs on a tree to connect those that have the knowledge of good and evil to the ability to have life eternal. You see, in the very beginning, God creates man and woman. In his own image, he creates them to be image bearers of him. And the reason God created people, it's not because he was needy, it's not because you're awesome, it's not because he likes to be sung to. But God is a triune God. There's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And in and of God's self, God is a perfect relationship, perfectly submitted unto himself in love. And out of an overflow of love for God's self, he creates man and woman in his own image. He creates us to give and receive love, to love him and to love each other. 
And he creates Adam, and he creates Eve, and he places them in a garden. And, he, and they've only got a few rules. God wasn't into a bunch of rules when it first started out, okay? He, he gave them rules like subdue and cultivate, like you're going to manage this land. And then my favorite command he gave them is this, be fruitful and multiply. Praise God, all right? And then it goes really, really well for one page. That's it. This one page, it all goes great. And then Adam and Eve created in the image of God, realized, you know what? I think we want to be God. We don't want you to be God. They don't say it this way, and you would never say it this way. But essentially, they just say, we think we are smarter than you, God. And Adam and Eve both sin. And when sin enters in this world, the whole thing is corrupted. The whole thing goes chaotic. And they do what every single one of us do when we sin. They run, and they hide, and they blame The Bible says that God walks through the Garden of Eden and he calls out to his children and he's never stopped walking through his creation calling out to his lost children. And Adam and Eve have hidden, they've run from God, and they've hidden from God. They were naked and unashamed and then after sin entered this world, they are full of shame. And so they run and they hide and they make coverings for themselves. And that was the very first religion. What they said is, nobody disagrees with this. Even Oprah's on board with me here. Everybody thinks something went wrong. And then religion is an attempt to say, you know what, I can fix it. I'll sew fig leaves together, together and I will cover me, God, I don't need you. And then God walks up and says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam, like every man in here, blames and he says, well, actually, it's the woman you gave me. I'm not sure if it's your fault or her fault, but somehow y'all have come together to ruin my garden. That's what he says. You can say out your amen, but that's a fact, Okay. <clears throat> and so then God, God curses the man and the woman and all creation, and all creation. And the fact that there are cosmic problems, global problems like hurricanes and typhoons and natural disasters is because we live in a chaotic world. And it's also true on the cellular level that there are cells sometimes in certain people's bodies that will not obey because we live in a broken world. One day it will all be all be made new, but right now we live in chaos and its effect, not of an individual person's sin, but because sin has entered this world. And so God curses or condemns the man and the woman and the serpent. And when he looks at the woman, here's what he says. He says, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and the enemies, but there will come a day when there will be born a son, a male child from your offspring, Eve, and the enemy is going to attack him, and the enemy is going to bruise his heel But this male child that's going to come from your line is going to crush his head. And it's the first declaration of the gospel. The first, we're not even out of the garden yet, and you get a declaration of the gospel. And then, because God is holy and just, he says you are banished from the garden of Eden. But these fig leaves deal you got going on, this religion that you've created is insufficient. And so God makes a covering for Adam and Eve out of his grace and out of his mercy. And he gives them animal skins to cover them. And that means for the first time in human history, blood was shed for the covering of shame and guilt as a result of sin. And so then you can fast forward real quick if you wanted to. Um, You can get into to Genesis 12 and following, and we meet this guy named Abraham. Remember, all fall we studied Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those fellows. And you remember Abraham, <clears throat> God picks him for whatever reason, comes in and picks him and says, Abraham, go tell your wife Sarah, you guys are moving, you're going to the promised land. Abraham says, that's great, where are we going? And, and God says to Abraham, I'll tell you when you get there. And can you imagine the conversation that Abraham has when he gets home? He goes home and says, Sarah, pack your bags, because we're moving. Where are we moving? I don't know. God will tell us when we get there. 
And wives, you would react exactly like Sarah reacted because you were such godly, submissive wives. And you go, oh, baby, as long as you're leading, I'm following. And they pack the U-Haul and they go. And then God promises them, I'm going to give you a promised son. And Abraham is 80 years old when he gets the promise. All right, fellas, say amen, all right? 80 years old. And then Abraham's response, you don't ever want to say this. He essentially says, God, I might be old, but my wife is older than old. Don't ever say that. And so... 20 years later, God gives them this promised son, this only begotten son is the way the Bible talks about it. And then God tests Abraham and says, Abraham, you have faith in me, and that faith is accredited as righteousness. We have a right standing because of your faith. I want you to take your son, your only begotten son, up on the hill, and I want you to sacrifice him. And by faith, Abraham takes Isaac, the son that he loved, and, and for Abraham loved God so much that he was willing to give his only begotten son. And as he raised the knife on that hill, God steps in and says, time out, no way, don't do that. And he says there's a ram caught in the thicket, and that ram can be a sacrifice that will substitute for your son. And we begin to get this picture of a dad who loves his son, and he would love the world so much that he would be able to give his son as a sacrifice. And then that's where we pick up in like Exodus <clears throat> and we meet, we meet kind of the hero that we've been talking about in Exodus. And so what's going to happen right after this, right after the, the Passover happens, <clears throat> is that, that Moses is going to take his people, take God's people. I hate to be a you know, spoiler alert, but you guys have seen the movie, right? What's going to happen next week is all the people are going to leave Egypt. They're going to go into the desert for a long time. And in the desert, <clears throat> God is going to give them... God's going to give them Ten Commandments for provision and for protection. And Pastor Britt and I were talking about the Ten Commandments. That's what pastors do. That's all we talk about is Bible and prayer and you. And so uh, <clears throat> we were talking last week, and Pastor Britt had this great line. He said the Ten Commandments are both a, a map and a mirror. They're a map of, that shows us where we should go and a mirror to let us know that we're lost and we can never get there on our own. God brings Moses up on the mountain, gives him the Ten Commandments, and he comes down. And then here's what we found out very quickly, that you and I are not good commandment keepers, are we? In fact, don't raise your hand, you're telling yourself. If I were to ask you, how many of you are really good at, at keeping all the commandments? If you raise your hand, well, you break the ninth one. That means you're a liar, okay? And so you're already out. And so because we get these commandments that God's demand on us is perfection, God is perfect, therefore we should be perfect, and we don't have the ability to. That in the book of Leviticus, which I know you've all been reading in your Bible plans, you know, for the new year, so I know you've got this memorized, but just as a reminder, God, <clears throat> in the book of Leviticus, sets up the tabernacle, which one day will become the temple, and in it, he sets up the Levitical sacrificial system. Why? Because you and I are not perfect, and we're really good commandment breakers. So... He builds this thing called the tabernacle, which one day becomes permanent, becomes the, the temple. And there's like an outer court where, you know, regular people like us live. And then there's an inner court where like the really religious people can be. And then inside that inner court, there's this one little room called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there's this box, and it, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. If you want to learn more about it, there's a great documentary called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, just check that out. It's probably all true. And inside the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments. And one time a year, there's this thing called the Day of Atonement. It's the, fun, it's the core of this, this temple or tabernacle sacrificial system. And what happens is all the people of Israel would gather together, and the high priest would stand before him, and the people would confess their sins to the high priest. And the high priest had two lambs or two goats in front of him. And, and the high priest would take the sins, the confessed sins of the people, and he would transfer them to the head of this goat. 
Then he would pray this prayer, and then he would take this goat to the edge of town, and he would cast him out, and every single one of us that had just confessed our sins would see the transferred sins to the head of this goat. It was called the scapegoat, and we would watch the scapegoat wander out into the wilderness as far as the east is from the west, and we would watch our sins go away and die. And then you think, whoa, it must be sweet for the other lamb. It's kind of not good for him. The, The high priest slaughters that lamb goes into the holy of holies that represented the very perfect, holy presence of God, and he would take the blood of that spotless lamb, and he would sprinkle it over the Ten Commandments that we had been breaking, and the blood of that lamb would cover over the broken commandments or sins for one year. And the sacrificial system is kind of like a shower. It's a great idea, but it doesn't last that long. That's why you got to do it over and over and over and over. And every single year, they would gather together for the Day of Atonement. And then, and then God began to send, God began to send prophet after prophet after prophet. And so, um, from the book of Leviticus all the way through to the book of Malachi, God continues to send person after person after person with one message. And the message was, hey, this Passover, this sacrificial system, all of these things that we do to try to make us right with God, it's all a shadow, but the real thing is coming one day. What, like we have to kill a lamb or a goat now just to kind of appease God for a year. But one day there is one coming that's going to be, um, that is going to be the fulfillment of all of these things that we're looking at. And so you get, you get passages in the Bible like Psalm 22. A lot of us are familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm sure many of you have, you know, like, like a cross stitching that your grandmother gave you with that on there. But if you back up one chapter in Psalm 22, it says... It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a messianic prophecy about one day we're not going to have to sacrifice lamb after lamb after lamb because one is coming that's going to be the, the full and final sacrifice. And in Psalm 22, you get things like, um, he will be pierced for our transgressions. His hands and his feet will be pierced. It was written, it was prophesied 400 years before crucifixion was even invented in human history and 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was ever crucified for the sins of mankind. And every single prophet, all the way to Malachi, the last prophet in the, in the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament. For you Italians, it's not Malachi, it's Malachi, okay? And he says, there is one coming with healing in his wings. And then you get a page to the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's 400 years of shh, nothing. And then, then, when you get to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, there's this crazy guy. Crazy hair, wears weird clothes. He's probably in a worship band somewhere, I'm sure. And he, he ate weird food. He ate locust and honey. You know, he's kind of paleo, weirdo kind of guy. You're right, wouldn't just eat normal food like the rest of us. And he starts this ministry, and it was not a seeker-sensitive ministry whatsoever. He would have loved the first part of every one of our services when we let everybody know you're a wretched, black-hearted sinner. John the Baptist would be in the back row saying amen over and over and over. And he would gather and he would just yell at people over and over and over. And his message was not do better and try harder and here's how to get out of debt and make friends. His his message was simply this, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized. And people would come to him and say, are you the one that the prophets were talking about? And he essentially said, I can't even hold that dude's gym bag. All I'm supposed to do is get it ready for when the Messiah does show up. And then one day, one day in the Jordan River when Thousands and thousands and thousands of people had traveled at least a day or a day and a half's journey to come and just see this crazy man, yell at him, and baptize him. 
And again, he was John the Baptist. That confused me as a kid. I thought there was like Pete the Presbyterian and Carl the Catholic and Mike the Methodist and John the Baptist. I didn't know. That's not what he meant. It was the first time in human history um, that, that a guy was baptizing or dip dunking, submerging, washing other people. And it's like the old life is gone and now you're going to walk in a new way. That's what he was doing. And then one day, at the Jordan, all these people had gathered together to hear what this crazy man was saying and get in line to be baptized. And then J- John the Baptist says, Behold! Behold is a Bible word. It means, all right, everybody wake back up, get off Facebook and pay attention. What I'm about to say is the most important thing I'm going to say. And he says, behold. He points over this way and says, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Can you imagine being there that day? You ever have somebody wave at the person behind you and you're like, why are you? I don't even know you. Oh, oh, that guy. There's probably a guy in the crowd who's like, I'm the Lamb of God. Oh, 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 it's Jesus. Okay, yeah, go ahead. I thought maybe. I didn't know. Okay, no. And then Jesus walks up. And some people are like, well, it can't be him. Like, he's a carpenter's kid. What's he ever done? And so he walks down and gets in the water and they have this com- little conversation about who baptizes who. And then John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and he comes out of the water and the heavens open up. And everybody hears out loud, behold my son in whom I am well pleased. And this declaration of John the Baptist is the hinge on which the Bible rests. The first half, the whole Old Testament is all about everything that we're doing here, the sacrificial system and all of this, it's just a shadow to point to what is coming. And then that day when Jesus walks down into that water, we hear this, behold, listen up, the Lamb of God, not another Lamb of God. Because what are all the other Lambs of God doing? They're dead. This is, this is not another Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God who comes to take away, not cover over. In the old system, it covered it for a year. This Lamb, when he's sacrificed, he's going to take away the sins of the religious, ceremonially clean Jewish men. No, of the world. It's a new covenant. And then Jesus starts teaching and preaching. In about three years, he kind of travels around. And yes, he did miracles, but that's not why he came. And yes, he taught good stuff about what to do with your money and how to be a better husband. Yes, that's all true, but that's not why he came. In the book of John, he says seven I am statements. He says things like, I am the good shepherd, and I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the door, and I am the light. And he's got seven of them. And if you'll remember... Last week, remember when Moses is talking to God through the burning bush and he says, hey God, if I go to Pharaoh, and they're like, well, who sent you? Who should I say sent me? And God says, here's my name. My name is I am. And that's why seven times the number of completion, Jesus in the New Testament says, I am, I am, I am. He's saying Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's why he came. And then, on the night that he was betrayed, he gets his disciples together. And they thought he was getting together for a Passover meal because all the way back in in the Torah, in Exodus chapter 12, God said, you're going to keep celebrating this Passover meal forever and ever and ever and ever so that people will never forget that our people were captives under Pharaoh and God delivered them. And so, these Orthodox Jewish traditional men get together for what we as Christians know as the Last Supper or Communion. And they didn't know what they were doing. They thought it was going to be just like every other year that they'd done this. And then the rabbi, Jesus, comes in and he already jacks the thing up because he says, everybody take your shoes off. I'm going to wash your feet. And they're like, no, 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 no. We read the book. You're supposed to tie them up tight, you know, lace up the Nikes. We got to run because that's what, that's what Moses and his people did. And Jesus is like, no, it's different. It's a new day. Take your shoes off. I'm going to wash your feet. And then after he serves his people, he takes the bread 
and he breaks it, and he says, this is my... Actually, you know what he does? We always do it in backwards in church. We always break it, tell you what it is, and then tell you to eat it. The Bible says he breaks the bread, gives thanks, hands it out, and then as they're eating it, he says, this is my body, broken for you. To which Peter and the boys are like, what, what, what? Again, this dude brought dead people back to life, right? If he wants to turn the bread you're eating into his finger, he could, all right? To which I think they're like, could you tell us what it is, and then we'll eat it? But he breaks the bread, passes it out, and says, this is my body. Now, remember, he hadn't been crucified yet. The disciples are like, hold on, hold on, you're messing it up. That's not what you're supposed to say. There's like a whole, like my rabbi, you know, he, he, this is how he would do it. Like, this is flatbread because we've got to eat in a hurry. That's what you're supposed to say. And Jesus is like, nah, it'll make sense one day. This is my body. <laughs> what I'm going to do on the cross is the fulfillment of what happened at Passover is what he's saying. And then he takes the cup, drinks it, gives thanks, passes it around. Everybody's drinking it, kind of in the middle of it. He says, and this is my blood. Like, oh, great. Right? Seriously? Okay. And then, and then he said, this is my blood, and it represents a new covenant. And everything's about to not really change. It changes from our perspective, but it's really about to be fulfilled. He says, the old covenant is a covenant of law. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. Here are the commandments. God's standard is perfection. God, we got a problem because we're not good commandment keepers. All right. It's It's a covenant of law. The new covenant in the blood of Jesus is the covenant of grace. I'm going to cover over your sin. I'm going to take away your sin. Now, at this point, the disciples do this, okay? They do communion, and listen, they have no idea what they're doing. They really don't. They don't have any idea what they're doing. It makes a lot more sense after Christ is, dies on the cross and he's resurrected. And then Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and on the cross, he says seven things again. Remember, he had seven I am statements. He's going to say seven things on the cross. In Bible number world, that's the number of completion. The first thing that he says on the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While he's on the cross, he says these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people go through all these theological dissertations about what that means. And part of what he's doing, because Jesus was a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, he was quoting Psalm 22. It's called a rabbinical remez. One of the uh, rabbinical tricks is that you would quote a psalm, which was a song that everybody sung. So all of the Jewish people there, they knew all the words to Psalm 22. And as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then they would begin to sing the rest of the lyrics of that song. It would be just like if I were to say to you, I like big. You see what just happened to you? It just did. You might want to repent for that later. Whatever, between you and the Lord. It just happens. And you're welcome. You'll have that in there for the rest of your day, okay? It just happens. And then in Psalm 22, read it for yourself this afternoon. You get a play-by-play, blow-by-blow of the crucifixion of somebody that's here to take away the sins of the people. And then the last thing that Jesus says on the cross, he pushes up on his nail-pierced feet, and he says, it is finished. The last words in Psalm 22 is this, it shall be done or it will be finished. And in that moment, everybody there is paying attention, goes, he's the one they're talking about. Behold, behold, that's the suffering servant from Psalm 22. And when Jesus says, it is finished, you know what he's talking about? He's, he's talking about what Passover was talking about. He's talking about the sacrificial system. He's talking about the Levitical law. He's talking about the completion of the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the promise that he made to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, that his heel has been bruised, but the, but the enemy's head has been crushed, that that day is over. And then there's an earthquake that hits Jerusalem, cracks it right down the middle. 
And if you jump over to that little room, that Holy of Holies that, that had the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, there was a curtain that separated wretched, black-hearted sinners like me and you that could never get in from the perfection that is God and from the top of the curtain to the bottom of the curtain when Jesus says, it is finished, it is ripped open. And people like you and I are invited into the very presence of the Almighty God. It changes. It changes. And then, and then they take him and they bury him in a tomb, a rich man's tomb. And this is when it gets real crazy. And then three days later, he's walking around town again. And Christianity is not built on a belief system, but an actual event that a dead man came back from the grave. And if you read the early accounts of the Christians in the book of Acts, they didn't talk much about what they believed in. Because I know some of you are like, I mean, I have a hard time just believing. That's fine. Those gentlemen talked about what they had seen and what they had heard. Because they saw a dead man walking around town. And it was not an accident. He said, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'll be back. And I don't know why anybody didn't write that down and pay attention. It was kind of the main point of his whole sermon. And then sure enough, there he is again. And people are talking, like, I was in line at Walmart the other day, and I saw that rabbi guy. He is back. And he ate, and he appeared for 40 days to over 500 people. That's what he did. And people started talking and talking and talking. And then in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gathers his disciples together on this mountain. There's about 120 of them. And he says, hey, listen, all things under heaven and earth have been given to my authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And just teach them what I taught you. And baptize them. That's why we did this today. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says that he ascended to the right hand of God. And here's what I love about that. It makes you feel better as a preacher when y'all don't pay attention. Is that as he ascends to the right hand of God, the Bible says there were some there that worshipped him, but others doubted. Wow, that makes you feel good. That means Jesus himself could be in this room and float up to heaven. And some people would be like, praise God. And others would be like, I don't know. I saw a David Blaine special on Fox, and he looked kind of, ah, I'm not sure, okay? And then all of the epistles, the rest of the books where, like, Paul writes to the churches. He's got one message over and over and over, and it's this. It's the gospel. I mean, you can read them for yourself. In the intro of most of the New Testament books, it says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. It's not something you graduate from. It's something that you just spend all of your time in and on. And then you get all the way to the book of Revelation, And again, if you're new to Bible study, I wouldn't suggest you start your Bible study there, but I'm a professional. Listen, here's what happens. The primary description of Jesus in Revelation, particularly Revelation 5, is this. The lamb that was slain. That from the very beginning, from from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all the way to that tree planted in Revelation, the tree of eternal life. It's about one thing. That in the middle of those two trees, there's a tree on Calvary, and that's that's where the lamb was slain. The forgiveness of our sin. I mean, that's the point. It's not only the point of the Bible, it's the point of God sending Jesus. That Jesus is the Lamb of God that has come to take away your sin. The best description of it, I think, is in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Paul says this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know what that means? Nobody is good enough to earn their salvation. Through the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Listen, very few people in Jacksonville believe that. I'm going to tell you, kind of, I don't know if I was taught this directly, but this is kind of what I've learned growing up, is that I thought, I thought, no, 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 that's not right. That's not right. I thought if we don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do, then me and God are kind of cool. 
And I don't need Jesus. I got Sunday school. That I'm supposed to be good. Paul says, by no works of the law will any human being be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the reason that God gave us the law and the Ten Commandments is to reveal to us that we need a Savior that we can't do it on our own. The reason, you know how you know you're speeding? You've got to look at the speed limit. If the sign just said, drive safe, good luck, ter- terrible idea. be a terrible idea. You've got to have a speed limit to realize that you are speeding, verse 21. But now the righteousness, anytime the Bible uses the word righteousness, just think right standing with God. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What that means is don't turn your nose up to the Old Testament. It was pointing to, it was pointing to the fact that a righteousness would come apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Listen, people, this is good news. You know what this means? This means that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it counted for you. That every single one of us are in the all category. That every one of us have rejected God, some through rebellion and some through religion, but we've all rejected God. Therefore, we are all invited in by the same cross of Jesus. None of us in this room or anywhere in this world are good enough that we don't need a Savior, and none of us are so bad that we're disqualified from what he did on the cross. For those of you that walk around with the guilt and and condemnation, for your sin, and you think, oh, I'm too bad. Actually, it's worse than you think. You're not bad, you're dead. You're dead. Now, here's good news in dead. There's not levels of dead. There's just dead. A little bit dead, a lot dead, both dead. A little, been dead a little while, dead a long time, still dead. It's all dead. In the Bible, it's not about trying to make bad people good. There is no such thing as a good Christian. There's just dead, and there's alive. And that means all of us are invited in, for there is no distinction. Here's the one verse from here that you might know, which is kind of a shame. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified. That means that me and you, regardless of our past, present, what you believe in, whatever, that every single one of us could be made right with God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know what a gift is? It means you did not earn it. That's what it is. Because if you earn it, that becomes a wage. Look, I get paid every two weeks here, okay? And I am very, very, very grateful to actually be able to get paid to do this and lead this church and all that. I've never thought of it as a gift. I've never gotten my paycheck and run into the CFO's office and be like, oh my gosh, Stacy, you shouldn't have. No. <laughs> she should have. I work hard. If she didn't, I'd be like, um, we need to talk, okay? I have earned a wage. This is a gift of God, a gift of God. And here's the gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I've been accused of only using like male-dominated illustrations, so here we go. We're trying to be inclusive here. Ready? This is for all you Groupon coupon people, all right? It's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time you redeem a coupon, it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? We'll go old school. Let's say you walk out to your mailbox and you open up your mailbox and there it is, a coupon. And what did you do to receive it? Nothing. You didn't have to ask for it. You didn't have to beg for it. It's not because you, you shopped enough at that store. It is just by the grace of that manufacturer, there you go. You get your coupon. And when you get your coupon and you walk into Publix and you go, there it is, a free ham. I'm going to get a ham. I like ham. Who doesn't like ham? I'm going to get a ham. And you go and get your ham and you get in line in the 10 items or less and you count the number in front of you. 
<laughs> different sermon, and then you go in, and you plop your ham down, and they go, boom, that'll be X amount of dollars. And you go, ha-ha, maybe for the average man, but I have a coupon. And you know what you do with the coupon? You redeem the coupon. I give you the coupon, and you give me the ham. This costs me nothing. Here you go. And you pick up your ham, and you're walking out to your car, and you're thinking, I got a free ham because I redeemed the coupon. And the maker of the ham, and primarily the pig, would say, that was not free. (laughs) There's nothing free. Somebody pays. And when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, on your end of it, on my end of it, we receive a free gift from God that we did nothing to deserve. And God would say, it wasn't exactly free. It cost me the life of my son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means. You'll never redeem another coupon without thinking of the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That means, that means a payment that, that absorbed the wrath of God. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me explain real quick. In God's perfection, in God's holiness, in God's justice, all sin must be paid for. He can't overlook sin like we can because we are sinful and he is perfect. And any sin is a slap in the face of an almighty God and requires an everlasting payment. And in his justice and in his holiness, sin must be paid for. That's what the first part there means. And in his mercy, in his divine forbearance, he overlooked it. That's what it says, okay? In his mercy, he delayed payment for that sin. You know what that means? That the first time you sinned, he didn't wipe you out in that moment, even though we deserved it. So in his holiness, sin must be paid for. In his mercy, the reason we're sitting here right now is because he delays payment for that sin. And then the good news of the gospel is this. And in his grace, he makes the payment that he is just and the justifier. You know what that means? That Jesus is the Lamb of God that has come to take away your sin for all who would believe. So my question is this. My question is simply this. Have you received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to work on it? Have you received, have your sins been taken away by the lamb that was slain for you? That you could do that. One of the things that struck me as I was studying this text is on that second plague when Moses goes to Pharaoh and all the frogs are there. And Moses is like, hey, I can take the frogs away. You just name the day. And you know what Pharaoh says? Let's do that tomorrow. Let's do that tomorrow. Which makes me go, Pharaoh, why would you do that? I mean, if God is offering to take all the frogs away, why didn't you just do that right now? You could clean up your house right now. Everything can change right now. And then I read the prayer cards. I talk to many of you that have kind of checking Jesus out and checking church out, and you're not sure if you want to be all in. And I've heard some of you go, I don't know if I'm there yet. I think I'm just going to wait. Why would you wait tomorrow? Now, I'm not the guy that's going to say, hey, you're never promised tomorrow, though you're not. And I'm not going to do the if you were going to die tonight because I grew up in the if you were going to die tonight culture, okay? I remember being at camp, and every week they would say, if you were to die tonight, I remember thinking, what is happening at camp tonight? 
that we might not make it out, okay? I, it freaked me out. <clears throat> Let me ask you, what about you? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Did you know that he came to do for you what God used Moses to do for the people of Israel? Did you know that you, you know this, did you know that you live enslaved and in bondage to sin and guilt and shame? And that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come to take all that away, to take all the results of our sin away right this moment. That you, you, could be delivered and walk in the freedom that he came to set you free to walk in right now. Do you know him? Would you please bow your head, close your eyes. If you're a believer in here, would you just pray that God would move like crazy? Would you thank God for the gospel and for being reminded of the gospel? And if you're not a believer, if, you, if you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, maybe you thought you were so good you didn't need it, would, and maybe today for the very first time you thought, oh my goodness, I need a Savior. That it's not by my good works, it's by His good work on the cross. Or maybe you're on the other end. <clears throat> you thought you were so bad you were disqualified. God's love for you is bigger than any sin you've ever committed. If that's you, why don't you just admit it to Him? Why don't you just admit it, God? I know I've sinned and fallen short of you. And believe and believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it counted for you. And then confess Him as Lord. That you're saying, from this moment on, you're the boss of me. I'm not the boss of me anymore. And you just tell Him, there's no magic prayer. And if that's you, if you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you just prayed some version of that prayer with God, would you just raise your hand and say, God, here I am. I surrender to you. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that... that there's a Passover for every one of us, that one day for every single one of us, an angel of death will pass over. And for those of us that have the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of our heart, God, we will just pass from life to life. We just change addresses from this world to your world. And so, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this place and that men and women and students for the very first time would surrender their life to the Lordship of you. And, God, I thank you that you save. I thank you that you redeem. I thank you that you deliver, not by anything that we've done, but by what you did on the cross. Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lamb of God that's come to take away our sin. And that is worthy of our worship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand? We respond to the gospel. We respond by singing. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings. You can do that electronically on your app or the giving kiosk or one of the giving boxes. And we respond by coming to the altar. However it is you need to respond, let's respond.